This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. This week, the ringmaster. We go one-on-one with the man in charge of the traveling roadshow, Romney's top advance man, Will Ritter, on the polyoptics of running for president of the United States. Then, Schindler Blue. Behind the scenes of the presidential oath of office with Max Schindler, the legendary NBC News Washington director. If you watched the television feed of any swearing-in since Lyndon Johnson, it was a Schindler production. And if that's not enough, it's the family business. For the first time ever on radio, Max Schindler and Max Schindler. But first, I am joined from our New York studios by my co-host, Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Josh was, of course, production chief in the Clinton administration, the same role I played in the George W. Bush White House. Josh, it's great to be back with you. Adam, great to be with you. Uh, This week, a home game for President Obama, Vice President Biden. They unveil their response to the Newtown massacre in OEOB 450, make the most out of it. They have a a signing of an executive order surrounded by four kids who'd written letters to the president uh, from different geographies. Pool right out in front, Charlie Darapak of AP, makes a gorgeous picture almost like Madonna and child, but child and president. That was the composition that I seem to see. That, and I looked at the museum today, front pages from Anchorage to Zagreb, Croatia, owns the front pages, and only had to walk about 500 feet to get that picture. That triangular uh, composition that, that you're referring to, I think, has been very effective, at least in its communication on the front page of newspapers. But this is such an important and serious issue that I have to take pause and wonder uh, whether the the optics matched the seriousness of an executive order signing. There's something didn't quite add up for me in the heartstrings that were trying to be pulled in the way that they crafted that, Josh. This is the trade-off, Adam. Uh, very serious issue, but you also want to own front pages and you want to give enough material to evening newscasts and to put their packages together. So you need other video elements. And And let me ask you, I mean, Does the signing of an executive order, not necessarily legislation, rise to the public event level that you saw yesterday? So I I applaud Vice President Biden, President Obama for taking this on, getting right to work, coming with 23 recommendations. But I also am very real politique about the need to create enough visual elements to craft a story to, frankly, combat that other piece of garbage that came out from the NRA yesterday, that that uh, online ad about uh, about the elitist hypocrites, which I you know was was way beyond the pale to me. Well, I think if you take the two together, these two issues point up something that's uh, of particular interest, and I think will dovetail nicely with our first guest, uh, Will Ritter. Uh, And that is that this perpetual campaign, that that cycle and cadence uh, that we see in a presidential year is required in order to get anything done. Uh, And it's not only required on the part of principals and organizations, but on the public as well. And the president said as much during that executive order signing, calling on the American people and empowering them that if they want to see this change, that his leadership alone can't do it. Congress has to be convinced. And that is where you get the kind of 
ad from the NRA uh, that, that we're seeing that, that you find, you know, way beyond the pale. And, and I'm not sure how I feel about it yet. Well, that's right. I mean, our founding fathers, God bless them, set up uh, a separation of powers, three branches of government. A president can only sign. He cannot uh, create legislation. So uh, whatever happens has to happen by uh, the pressure of constituents to their elected members of Congress, and there needs to be passage of legislation that, that the president can sign. So he rolls out his political organization and sees if perhaps there is enough momentum given the tragedy that happened in Newtown, to finally get something done. You know, last uh, spring, when I decided to uh, cheat on Josh King with another polyoptic master, uh, his name was Will Ritter. And uh, oddly enough, uh, he is someone that I had worked with uh, going back to the 2008 presidential campaign. Let me start by welcoming you to the show, Will. Thanks for being with us on Polyoptics. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me. Uh, you'll recall, and I want to share with our listeners, that uh, it was in 2007 during uh, the, the primary, the long slog that was the 2007 primaries, as you were working very closely uh, with Mitt Romney, one of the core team, that we met in northern Florida for a first ever uh, network interview during the campaign with Mrs. Romney and the governor. Yeah, that's right. I remember it. I remember it well. I was uh, body man slash advanced man at that point. And I remember you and I went uh, toe to toe over the slightest changes to the background in an interview. And I think we were there till about one in the morning. Josh, can you can can you feel me? I mean, uh, there <laughs> it is. Network producer and advanced man, body man setting up what is really critical because it was the first time uh, in this way, it was for a Sunday show with George Stephanopoulos, and I was the senior producer of the show at the time, where we were going to get a really good, honest look and feeling for Governor Romney and Ann Romney, who, and, and remind us, Will, uh, she was even more uh, sort of in the throes of dealing with her MS at that time. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So we had to, we, and she hadn't really been in front of the public eye that much, so we really wanted to make sure that this was this is important to the Govs. We wanted to make sure that it looked right and we communicated it right. But I think, you know, both you and I probably went a little over the top trying to uh, impress each other. But it, <laughs> Go big or go home, <laughs> exactly. baby. Josh, you've been through that. We, we've talked about it before. But those moments, uh, especially in the formative stage of a, of a campaign, are really important. Yeah. where Was that a D.C. setup or was that on the road? Oh, it was on the road. It was uh, on the road. We, De- had, we had to turn a, could have been, I remember we had to turn a hotel room, like it often happens so many times on the campaign trail, into some kind of light menagerie of flowers and paintings. Actually, I, you know, it's funny that we're really going into the details here because I think it was uh, a corporate office and okay. uh, we had like, you know, just pulled apart the CEO's office and the CFO and started pulling elements here, there and everywhere into this conference room. And we were there. And you know what? It was really a testament to, to Will Ritter's uh, tenacity to make sure that it, it was just right. And we would, wanted to stay toe to toe with Will to make sure it was right. And it turned out to be a, a really wonderful piece. And I have to say, it was the first time I ever met uh, Governor Romney, uh, and it was certainly the first time I had met Ann Romney. She is one of the most, and Josh, yeah, I've told you this on the air and off, one of the most amazingly engaging, charismatic, and really thoughtful people. She wows you when you meet her in person. Yeah, she, she's a lot of fun. She's really magnetic. Uh, and we actually had advanced guys who would request to go on the road just with Mrs. Sure. Romney. It wasn't considered the JV job because um, they had so much fun um, having control and being able to set up stuff with, with her. She was uh, really friendly, and um, and guys loved to work with her. Well, I remember in the summer of n- night of 2007, you guys were in Iowa crisscrossing. I was doing a piece for Men's Vogue magazine. 
Oh, and yeah. you were uh, the body man for Governor Romney, and I was fo- focusing on little Charlie Pierce at the time. That's right. That's and, right. Uh, and what a get- good man. You know, Will, Will never forgot Charlie Pierce. He Char- brought him along. Yeah, Charlie Pierce, a best friend of mine. He designed the hat that's on your head, the Romney Advanced Snapback. I take, I take some responsibility for designing that hat as well. But interesting, you know, Charlie looks just out of central casting, especially for a Romney campaign. And I kept my eyes on Charlie because, boy, you know, I like to have his... his face in, in Men's Vogue, because that was going to be perfect. But here was Will Ritter, body man for Governor Romney, and, you know, he's got the facial hair, he's got a little uh, thinning hair up top, and I'm saying, little, you don't look exactly You had more like hair back then, Ritter. You don't look from GOP central casting, Will Ritter. Uh, well, Where'd no, you I, come from? How did I, you get connected with Romney? Well, I, uh, my first co-op out of Northeastern was working for the new for Governor Romney at the State House, and, you know, I was the first guy they sent on a plane to Des Moines to go move around bike rack. So I was I had the benefit when I had the job as director of advance and operations on this campaign of doing every job all the way up. So I could really, um, you know, no matter who called, I could really try to walk them through any situation that they were dealing with. Well, let's fast forward for a second because uh, I want Polyoptics listeners here on, on Sirius XM 124 POTUS to understand that Will Ritter uh, was the man in charge of Operation Advance for uh, the Romney-Ryan campaign. And that goes all the way back to the very first day when Romney was uh, was, was was saying that he was going to throw his hat into the ring through the primaries. And then ultimately, when I had the good fortune to get back in touch with Will and join his team, uh, it was really right after that, uh, that very important night in New Hampshire when, when you turned from the primaries to the general. Talk about that night, that event. That was a real watershed event for, for, the, for the campaign. Yeah, you know, we had, we had a great team of, of uh, young guys, and we really wanted to show our stuff. New Hampshire election night was one that we pretty sure we were going to win. Uh, we knew the cameras would be on us. We knew we'd get, get to go live. So we put a lot of resources and time into making sure that that looked perfect. And to go from a small group, I'd say maybe 13 of us, were, you know, all in, the producers, the advanced guys, everybody, um, to pull that off, which, you know, there were some people before that night that said we couldn't do it in that room and it was too small and it wasn't going to be set up right, to pull that off and then immediately switch gears to general election mode, which is night and day. And all of a sudden I'm on the phone calling up guys like Adam Belmar and saying, look, I was really proud to run this thing and, and bring it to where we did, but this is the big show and we need, we need anybody who's done this before to come in and, and start throwing ideas out there because we have a heck of a mountain to climb here. Well, you know, I, I've talked to Josh about this, and I, I, this is a question for both of you. When you get out of that place where you are the standard bearer all of a sudden um, and you've got the real loyal inner crew, it seemed like that was a time, at least for the Romney crowd, that the Bushies uh, were... Were, were allowed to come and play. Is that fair? And is that kind of what you would experience formatively, Josh, going back with that inner core of Clinton folks who had to broaden and bring in folks from all walks of democratic politics? Yeah, I mean, my own history was probably I was part of that that second wave. I was not a original Little Rock guy. I was a little I was a Clinton guy from about Super Tuesday '92 on having been a Bob Carey guy before that and Paul Simon and Mike Dukakis in 88. And, you know, you do feel like your own core, and especially for you, Will, having worked in in 08 before you got to that level and some of those little tiny hamlets that you'd visit and all the the stuff that you do near uh, Governor Romney's house in New Hampshire and 
very core to suddenly you've got Swedish television that needs to have their hands held and it's too much of a zoo to manage and you got to let go don't you? you you really do and you have to let people who have done it before really run run with it and just try to keep an eye on on quality um, all the way all the way through you know the the points that I always hit was you know does it put does this put some the gov in a place and does it underscore the message and am I not getting complaints? And is the campaign manager not getting complaints? If those three things were, were done, then um, then we were fine. So we were happy to have um, people come in, and it was a it was a family from the, the get go. I think people understood the challenge we had, and they knew that the resources we were going to bring to bear. Um, so they they were on board, and they wanted to throw some parties, and we had a, we had a good time. Let's talk about the challenges because I think that what we will identify and talk about right now are things that are are really you know so fundamental but off the radar screen for so many people unless they're real polyoptics fans so when you look at the website uh, polyoptics.com you're going to see a picture of will that i took sitting uh, in front of his desk uh, a small office uh, but the center of activity the center of an army really this general sitting in front of this giant american flag that covered the rear wall of this office in a little dog bed uh, where pockets lived and pockets was like and still is sort of the uh, the unofficial mascot of the of the Romney campaign. Yeah, is that it, fair it, to say. Yeah, it's strategist, main strategist. Strategist. <laughs> yeah, if pockets, if it didn't meet the, meet the pockets <laughs> test, and this dog just sort of ran roughshod over the entire headquarters, Josh. Um, and he's a real lovable dog. Yeah, but appropriately, Boston Terrier, ten years old, um, and she got to go anywhere she wanted. Any senior strategy senior strategy meetings I could get in, pockets would be happily invited. <laughs> Look, to. it's fair to say yours is a very dog sensitive campaign. With a shame. <laughs> <laughs> But, no comment. But, no comment. But the the challenges really extend beyond this bringing in the widening the team. Uh, Will talk to us for a second about you know the core group who sort of built this brand that was very optically Romney, but were not experienced in what you needed to do, which was to create this traveling roadshow where everything was going to be seen through the television lens. It had to come alive in a much larger. Uh, way. Talk about those challenges. Well, I mean, it, it's you go from trying to get four or five news outlets to cover your business roundtable in Manchester to setting up a fourth level of deck for 200 members of the media coming. And I mean, it's like trying to shoot a movie without controlling the 200 cameras. So you just have to make everything look as good as you can and cross your fingers. So we, you know, we reached out to people both in the private sector uh, and who had done this before in politics and said, you know, let's let's have your ideas. How can we run this better? How can we run this um, smoother? Uh, but, you know, it, it was a challenge. We had eight buses, two planes, and about three or four events a day per candidate. Um, things get a little crazy, and it was, it was a godsend that, you know, it looked organized through the camera lens because there's a lot of heat going on behind the curtain to get, get it out there. So you were there for 08. Did you think through that period between 08 and 12 and were you did you know for certain that you were going to be there beginning and to set up that apparatus and also what did you think about Governor Romney's performance himself <clears throat> as a polyoptician and a performer on the stump and how he'd need to improve or change for 12 and to what extent do you think he achieved what he set out to do or fell short yeah, on the first question, on you know, definitely I, I try to stay close. I believed in the gov. Um, I still do believe in the gov. Um, so I, I wanted to stay close, and, and he trusted me, so um, I was happy to get that opportunity. Um, the things that I think that we needed to work on was kind of loosening him up a bit 
and getting him down with people. And if you notice, a lot of our events, we did many of our events in the round, really tried to layer people around him um, and, uh, and and make it look a little more casual, a little more warm um, than some of this kind of stiff, ask-me-anythings that we did in 08. Uh, as far as the Gov, I mean, he's just a fantastic uh, performer. He really put his trust in the team around him of, of fantastic professionals, and he would show up and we'd say, hey, look, this is what you're going to do. This is the catwalk to walk out. Here are the different... Um, items you might want to bring up, um, and he would just go with it. And, uh, you know, he'd surprise us a few times, but most of the time he he would go with what we designed and respect the plan that we had put in place, and I think things look good. You know, I have to say that I, I early on in the process, I got out in uh, uh, Lynchburg, Virginia, to see the Gov um, out on the stump. And my experience, you know, in person was very much what, what Will is, was talking about. So comfortable with people, good on the rope line, uh, sort of eschewed the the written remarks in order to be more off the cuff, and he just spoke from the heart, uh, and and it went really well. But there was a disconnect on television. Uh, not always were you getting uh, that to come through, and I, I imagine every night sitting back watching the returns, which was essentially the evening newscast, was just a nail biting experience for you, Will. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would watch them all every night and really just be on the edge of my seat because you you don't know what people are going to take and there's everybody knows there's a way to cut up you could you could spend $100,000 on a great event that's really wonderful and they could take a little 3 seconds off the rope line poorly lit where he says something out of context and all of a sudden that's that was your day and that's what leads the news um and you kind of that's just a gamble and you just have to keep your fingers crossed do you think that there's any sense of an agenda in the editing suites of of networks and cable to sort of say I want to see this moment, this three seconds that didn't jive with the other 45 minutes of the show? Yeah, I won't I won't point fingers, but yeah, I think that that happened a little more than it did on the Obama side where they would, they would kind of see where Obama was going and try to see how they could best showcase that, where we didn't get as many, you know, on the podium moments where obviously that's what we had designed and produced. I want to ask about one thing, if I can, Adam, that both Governor Romney and President Obama did. It was always portrayed to me as verboten from the Secret Service after we did it a couple times in 92, and it had a legacy, which was that raised catwalk of the walkout. Yeah. And if you can share with listeners what that is, what the benefits are, but also the concerns that Secret Service might have through that technique, and to what extent you were able to overcome any protests that they would have. Right. I mean, the Secret Service was great to work with. It was always a negotiation. They obviously have a way they want to keep them ultimately protected. You don't want them anywhere near the camera shot. So you kind of had to find a, a middle ground. Catwalk is a way that, you know, you can make a four-foot stage, um, put little gutters on either side of it, and have um, the gov or the candidate walk along that catwalk because something that I, we took advantage of at the VP announce, for instance, on the um, uh, Battleship Wisconsin, which uh, John Stewart made fun of us for, was that the camera cannot cut while the walkout is happening. Right. So I would tell the guys, make that walk as long as humanly possible because they won't cut away. It's not like they can go to commercial and come back when he hits the podium. So I think that, you know... And that makes for the best stills, too. Sure. Those action shots of walking. And he's walking through people. And, and you know, the, the Secret Service get a little nervous about that, make sure that we had wide enough gutters um, and that kind of thing. But, you know, that's something that we worked, we did a lot and did away with kind of the raised rope line because that puts you kind of raises the agents and puts them very much in the shot. So you you learn these things. You look at the front pages the day after, and you just say that worked, that didn't. We're not going to do that again. Well, Ritter, I want you to talk about the Wisconsin and the rollout of the VP announcement because obviously 
the excitement and the suspense about who it's going to be and where it's going to be is something that was, you know, a parlor game for uh, cable news and others. But this was also, I, I, I understand, because I was working on it on your behalf to some extent as well, uh, something that, that, that you had to keep from so many people. You didn't land on this. Tell us the story about how that actually came about. Well, that was by far the most stressful part of the campaign for me because, as you know, you know, my ideal was to have five guys somewhere five days ahead of any big event, and this is the biggest event. And I knew I wasn't going to get anywhere close to that, so I became like a detective trying to figure it out. Um, we, uh, we settled on Norfolk, Virginia, um, with very, I won't tell you how long, but with very short amount of time to get down there, we were building through the night, uh, in the pouring rain, um, putting up bunting on these, uh, on these railings and, um, trying to pipe and drape everything so they wouldn't see Paul Ryan pulling so the So you line. knew you had a rainy event even as you went into it with less than 24 hours? Yeah. Yeah. We knew it and we just had to really just pray. We didn't have any real other option. We had a bus tour with many stops. I knew it was going to be on one of those stops. So um, saying this for the first time now, I pretty much made every one of those stops ready to be a VP announcement if it had to be. I mean, there was a lot of extra stuff um, at the events before it. And thank God for the events afterwards because they actually traveled together. Yeah, you put my kids through camp on that alone. I tell <laughs> exactly. you. Exactly. There was a lot of trucks ready to go. But uh, we knew when it was going to be Norfolk, the, the Gov called me um, the day before and, you know, said, you know, we, I know this is kind of short notice, but... I'm, you guys have always been great. You think you're going to get it together? I said, yeah, sir. I think we have probably a 60% chance of it working. <laughs> and he said, well, what's the rain option? I said, we're on a battleship. There really is none. I guess we could go down in the galley, invite a few cameras. But, um, you know, we prayed and the, and the rain held off and we had a good group, about 5,000 people there, really um, picturesque announcement. Did you think about uh, deck in front of the in front of the 16-inch guns at all and doing it on, actually on the ship? Or was it always going to be on land in Norfolk with the ship as a backdrop? Uh, it was Once you got there and looked at it, there was, really wasn't enough room. As you know, like especially with the amount of press that follows now, there's just no way that you can you can put things in, in places that are a little tight. And in front of the guns, I, I know you're thinking of, of the Reagan that, shot. And uh, also the Battleship Missouri of the yeah, Surrender of Japan in right, 1945. Right. You know, that's, that's what I went to because, I mean, Belmar, I'll, I'll tell you, the ideas that we had was just me looking up Reagan events, looking up Bush events, and these guys really wrote the book on visual communication and trying to copy it. I can tell you so many times I pointed at a picture and said, find me a bar- find me this barn, not a barn that looks like this. I want this barn. I want the stage in the exact same place because that guy was the president, so they must have known somewhat what they were doing. You guys executed uh, against the barn uh, genre in a way that uh, it just blew me away because we really went big. You know, we were covering with huge wide shots, and there were some things we did around Father's Day, too, with some penance, some things that we, we did well that I wish we could have done more of. Uh, but that that's my two cents of the matter. But I, I do want to get Josh to, to weigh in for a second on this issue. Um, when you are constantly pulling off miracles, when you are getting last-minute changes or, you know, it just you don't fail, how hard is it to constantly give you know, the principal's confidence that, you know, we need time and we've got to be thoughtful versus, oh, these guys can pull off anything. It just doesn't matter what kind of crap we throw at them. Well, I, I think that uh, as we've talked in a, a, a polyoptics episode maybe four or five weeks ago with Arun and uh, and the gang, you know, the question is whether uh, we 2012 might mark the end of the big event because you guys had to work so hard on pulling up a crowd at every stop. I actually think Obama almost ramped it back 
and didn't put as much pressure on enormous crowds because the payoff was that picture. But how much did that picture really? That's, a, that's really such benefit? a great point, Will. You got to talk about uh, crowd building and what what an effort that was uh, for all of your teams and, and just the optics of the campaign. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, we're all talking about the same thing: the over-the-shoulder shot that goes into infinity of crowd. Um, and so it takes you know eight thousand people to mm-hmm. in, in a field to even make that even remotely. Except possible. some small towns in Pennsylvania with main streets that go up into the exactly. You, you can all, make it work. There. Yeah, all sorts of tricks. But I mean, we we pulled out all the stops. We had planes in the air. We took front page ads we you know it's not like it was artificial but what we did was we made sure every republican who could w- could drive to that event was going to go to that event and have a good time but it is artificial because you're using campaign resources to create art for newspapers and newscasts i don't think it's artificial i think you know i, I think that it's 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 almost requisite you know i mean how else can you penetrate into the communities without getting the word out there in an advertising kind of way I'm just thinking, Adam, in terms of like time and resources of your field staff, your advanced staff to say it's got to be 8,000 people or it's a failure versus <clears throat> we have to focus on our GOTV targeting. Let's do a smaller event that is going to get as much coverage as as the infinity picture, because I know how much you guys sweat it out to make some of those four week out yeah. crowd shots work. And it was I, it's painful. to. What do think you say, about Ritter? I think you have to have a nice mix um, of, of different kinds of events. You're totally right. You know, you need to have the business uh, roundtables and these uh, uh, really a variety every day. And you don't have to try to do the huge rally every night. But the press is looking for the momentum, aren't yeah, they? Yeah. Well, and that's something that, you know, that's specific to like the last two weeks of a campaign. And I mean, I shot off, I shot off fireworks every single night. Uh, we, oh, wow. we, um, we really tried to really just push it and, and give that impression. The energy that we could feel if you went to an event, we want to make sure that that transfer it through the television. I want to say two things. One, that uh, the generational aspect of, of polyoptics and advance in uh, in presidential politics is critical. And uh, Will, you've really been grooming, as you yourself have been groomed, uh, a generation of operatives and people who have now sort of got the necessary skills to go forward. And I want our, our audience to realize that. But I want you to talk about what you're doing now. You're the president and CEO of Beacon Operations Security Services. It's a firm in Boston that's dealing with operational security born out of the work that you've been doing uh, with uh, the Secret Service, with the state troopers, with dealing with logistics of security, but also bringing an advanced operation into the private sector and keeping it alive for potential uh, use in Republican politics, right? Yeah, absolutely, and, and we're we're open for. Um, thank you for the plug, by the way, Adam. And we're we're open for for clients, um, but serving both the private sector and people who, in campaigns. I think that you know having having the logistics worked out and having someone with experience in these kind of assets and contacts is important. And uh, you know we're able to do the security side of things and the operational side of things. And uh, I think people are really happy with our service, and we get a great benefit. So um, give us a call. Well, I can tell you, uh, Josh King was tapped early on in the Obama administration to go in and be an advance lead for a very important foreign trip. It's hard to find people with that kind of experience. Yeah, we understand that. I mean, I know I'm going to get calls and grumble about it when I'm 60 years old, if I'm lucky, um, and go out and do something. And I would I would do it at the drop of a hat. because. And we found that, I mean, guys like Rick Ahern, 
um, would oh go out. Oh my God, would, he's I, still alive. He was out there for Giuliani in '08. Yeah, he, he's a he's a legend. I mean, he was he was standing there with Reagan um, in the early years, and I called him, and he was happy to do a finance event for Paul Ryan because you know it's people who believe and it's people who love this stuff, and you never really shake it. And at the end of the day, there's nothing better than having someone give you a plane ticket, a rental car. Uh, crappy hotel room in a town that you've never been before and just get to know that town live with it bring uh, bring the nation's press and the presidential candidate there and then eventually if, if you hang out with it long enough like adam like me hopefully will you know you get to go with the president f- over to foreign to foreign soil and br- it takes you all over the world and there's nothing like it and max schindler was one of those guys that we'll talk about a lot next with them yeah will ritter uh the ringmaster the the head of the Romney Ryan advance operation. He was in charge of the road show. He had the most prominent polyoptic spot in a presidential campaign on that side of the aisle. Uh, we're really honored you take the time to be with us. I hope you'll come back on polyoptics. Absolutely. Had a great time. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks, Will. Josh, we're going to take a hard turn towards the guy who actually won the 2012 presidential election in the second inaugural of Barack Obama. That's right. You know, it's happening uh, on Monday, uh, the swearing in on the uh, west front of the Capitol, uh, and it will be broadcast to every corner of the globe. Uh, As we talked about last week, these are incredibly rare moments. The second inaugural, presidents don't always get them, and they they are pivotal uh, because either the second term is going to uh, not be as momentous as the first, it's it's going into the fifth year of an eight-year term, or there's an opportunity to begin anew. Well, as a former television producer, a network television producer with ABC News, I want to share what little I learned about the way Washington television operates. There are pools, and that means that some folks, some networks will take the lead on behalf of all others, because if you don't divide, you cannot conquer in Washington. There just isn't enough human resources or mechanical resources. And what that's left us with, especially at the most rarefied era of Washington politics, the inaugural, are some assignments that have stuck. And uh, the man who's been in charge for years and years and years going back to the swearing in of Lyndon Johnson, Max A. Schindler, a legendary director now retired from NBC News, joins us along with his son, Max Schindler. Welcome to Polyoptics, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. Um, You know, Max Jr. uh, and I worked at ABC News together, but uh, Max A. Schindler, talk for a second about uh, the the very early days of your career at NBC News, one story in particular jumps out, and that was uh, perhaps the uh, the impromptu swearing in of Lyndon Johnson and the first pictures we saw of him coming off of Air Force One at Andrews after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. I was a few blocks away from the NBC bureau when a woman was screaming at me out of a car window. She said, turn on your radio. So I turned it on, and I heard that the president... Uh, and Governor Conley had been shot in Dallas. And so I raced into the newsroom, and uh, it was just chaos. A bureau chief said to me, he said, I want you to get your wife to pack you a bag. We got a charter plane going to Dallas, and uh, we're going to fly you down there for the coverage. So I called my wife, and she was very upset. But she called her, and before the bag ever got there, we heard that the president had died. So... I was sent out to Andrews Air Force Base, and when I got there, we knew Air Force One would come back, but I didn't know whether Lyndon Johnson would be on it or 
the president's wife uh, or um, or the coffin. I, I, now, in the chaos of that day, you moved more quickly, yourself and uh, NBC News, than anyone else. And you ended up being the eyes and ears, the de facto pool for all of the world that day at, uh, at Andrews. Well, they had sent the mobile unit out way before I left, but I have to tell you there was a Virginia policeman. I was stuck in traffic. I don't know what happened to people that day. They were crying. They were walking around the streets. Uh, there was uh, a lot of sadness. And there was traffic bumper to bumper going all the way out to Andrews. I thought, I'll never get there. And this cop came in between in between the, t- the two lines of traffic. And uh, when he got to my car, I rolled down the window. I told him who I was. And he said to me, you follow me. And he turned on his red light. And we went over the medium strips in the middle. We went down uh, the path that was cleared by his siren. We went all over the place. He got me to Andrews in a very short time. And uh, to this day, I've always regretted that I didn't take the name off of his name badge. It was so chaotic. He owed a, We owed him a bigger thank you than sure. what I gave him. Well, take us fast forward then in that day and those events to you calling the live shots, the cameras that you had uh, from the mobile unit, the entire world is watching, and let me ask you to start from the moment that Air Force One comes to a roll, rolling stop and uh, the cargo uh, is being let down. And what you did then and, and what it led to. We only had two cameras and we weren't allowed anymore. And I had talked the Air Force out of those short steps that go up to small planes. And I put one on each, figuring from the same angle that they could get over this, the reels and the stills that were going to be out there. And when the plane stopped, we weren't allowed to have on lights on until the plane stopped because we was going to blind the pilot. When it stopped, uh, the cameraman could hear me and the motors were turned off. And the rear, I figured the coffin was on the plane. I didn't know about Johnson and I didn't know about Mrs. Kennedy. But I figured the coffin was there because there was a cargo loader coming up to the plane and the rear door opened. And I just said to everybody, let's make sure the coffin comes out and not dirty dishes from the flight. And the door opened, and it was the coffin. And normally, if you've ever been in a mobile unit, they're very, very noisy places. And there was complete silence in that mobile unit at that time. And I remember saying to the crew, do you all realize that's the president of the United States in that coffin? The American public had been told John F. Kennedy was dead. But this was the first concrete proof they had seen of it, the coffin coming out. There were no pictures from Dallas of him being shot or anything other than that motorcade. Events moved quickly after that. And you you kept America and the world watching uh, as as this procession moved forward. But what happened next is perhaps even more interesting. I didn't know what to do. Well, we didn't have a helicopter. It was dark and the procession was going down going into the distance and all you could see was blinking lights. And I said to the cameraman, I said, slowly pan back to Air Force One. I didn't know what else to do with the camera. And he panned back to Air Force One and I thought that was it. And all of a sudden, Lyndon Johnson came out and he made his first address to the American public saying how sorry he was for the Kennedy family and how sorry he was for the nation and saying, I will do the best that I can uh, with your help and God's help. And then uh, various... uh, I think it was Everett Dirksen and Hubert Humphrey, the senators who were the head of the majority and minority party, talked to him. And then uh, he got in a car and left. Uh, I guess it was about four or five years later, I was doing uh, 
conversation with the president. The first one was ever done for all three networks. And I described this whole scene to him. And I said, uh, were you sitting in the plane watching when I panned back? He said, damn right. And I figured it was my cue to come out. And I figured if I hadn't panned back, would he have stayed in there? But uh, one of the magazines like Time or Newsweek or something said the camera dramatically portrayed the passing of the old to the new. And I said, no way. I just didn't know what, what else to do with the camera. Josh King, uh, you know, these are the images that uh, are the most iconic and memorable in American politics that we're talking about here. Yeah, and uh, and Max has been in the control room for so many of them. And I'm fascinated by reading, Max, your, uh, your writings, The View from the Control Room, because they do span... 50 years of American history and involvement with every president. I was struck by your involvement with one president in which you you actually crossed the line. You're in a meeting with Leonard Garment, Roger Ailes, Frank Shakespeare, and Harry Trevelyan uh, about actually going from your perch, which was then NBC News, to actually coming into the White House or the committee to uh, elect uh, Nixon. Committee to elect, right. The committee to elect. And so tell us how you were drawn into working for Nixon and your experience in there and how a Washington of a different time allowed that, but that was also what Adam Belmar did from ABC to George W. Bush. You know, Josh, I'm not really sure how that happened. I got a call from Roger Ailes saying, would I come for an interview? Uh, we were both young, and he was very skinny at the time, if you can imagine <laughs> how many years ago that is. Uh, Roger was a great director, and I went in for the interview, and uh, they asked me if I wanted to do these shows with uh, Mr. Nixon. And I said, well, you know, I work for NBC News, and I don't know, I'd have to get a leave of absence. And they said, we'll take care of that. So I have a feeling they had made some inquiries before that. And we had a long discussion about what we would do and what we wouldn't do, and at the end of the discussion, they said, well... Uh, we're gonna, we think we want to hire you, but are you a Republican or a Democrat? I said, I don't think it's any of your business. I said, I'm here to make you a man look good regardless of my politics. They said, okay, you're hired. I said, okay, for the record, I'm a Democrat. <laughs> and they all laughed. Well, let's stop for a second right there, Josh. I mean, I have to say, at the professional ranks of, of what we're all talking about, and I'm looking at, at Max Schindler, uh, the son, uh, I don't know your politics, Max, but I know that every time you get into a control room, you've got one objective. That's to make these people look good, but also to be the eyes and ears of the world. And, and, and when you're put in that position, to be an honest broker about what there is to see. Absolutely. I think you obviously have to put aside your personal feelings about any uh, political persuasions you have. And I always try and do that. I usually try and think about it uh, in terms of the audience of the network that I'm working for. In this case, this inaugural, I'm working for Black Entertainment Television. So I'm thinking about what that audience wants to see. Um, but I, I definitely try and put my own personal political views aside, and I'll leave them aside for this. And, and Josh, well. uh, talk about that because that's something that uh, you have great relationships with members of the press, um, working in a Democratic administration, being out on the campaign trail. Um, is that more of an issue today than it was in the collegial working environment that you had back when you were, uh, you know, active in democratic politics? Well, I don't know for sure, Adam. I, I think that when I worked um, on inaugurals or state state of the union, you know, I knew the text of what uh, 
President Clinton was going to say. I had some sort of creative idea of if I was sitting in a living room and watching what uh, Max Schindler, uh, the senior, or Max Schindler Jr. would be calling, that if uh, he were to cut away to a certain personality who was recognizable to the viewer, then that might make for a more compelling broadcast to cut away from what was happening at the podium and what the president was saying because it would give context to those words and that rhetoric. And so I'm sure that, uh, you know, my two cents in the control boot truck uh, at some of the events that I worked on were, were taken into taken under advice uh, that they would sometimes do what I'd suggest and sometimes not because Max and Max, you guys are actually the boss. At the end of the day, calling the shots that you have going up to the satellite and out to viewers' homes. Max is, uh, Max just shook his head. Is Tell your, me, Max, is what are you view? thinking there? Uh, Josh, NBC was the pool of the capital. Still is. Uh, our, still is. And we have the obligation to put out the, what the president's saying and the major event. The cutaway shots that you're talking about are taken by the NBC, ABC, CBS, or Fox BET. unilateral cameras, BET, you're right, uh, the, by the unilateral cameras. They'll take the shot of the, if somebody's talking about uh, the Supreme Court justices, they'll cut to the Supreme Court justices. If somebody's talking about uh, the vice president, they'll cut to the vice president. Our job as the pool was to stay with the major event. I had two cameras that were head on, both of them on the president. Uh, I very rarely, one of them was tighter than the other, but I very rarely varied them from those shots uh, unless it was something really important that I had to show. You know, Max, I'm thinking about what Josh said, though, and my experience with uh, State of the Unions, for example, where CBS so often when I was involved had the pool uh, in, in in the House chamber, you know, you'd want to advance the script if you could to the director because that kind of cooperation, that ability to leverage the visual that Josh is describing was best done by someone like you. You're both right. Uh, at the State of the Union, there's only one pool in there. There are no unilateral, ca- unilateral cameras. I can't even say it. At the inauguration, there is. we had about uh, 18 or so cameras, Max. We had 18 cameras. Now up roughly. to 35, by the way. Currently. Okay, so let me ask you a real pointed technical question. Is it harder to direct the pool of the inaugural at the Capitol or to direct on top of it? You're Roger Goodman at ABC who was trying to direct on top of your direction of the pool and leverage it. Well, you know, interestingly enough, I've been directing on top of his directing and had that experience. Well, people should know that. For other Schindler networks. and Schindler, it's the family business. Yeah, I've done it for other networks. shops, right? I, I tell you what, there's, a di- there's different um, positions on this based on who the director is. Some try to cut around the pool, but if you have a great pool director like uh, my dad sitting here next to me, you know, you de- definitely want to try and let them do their thing. But a lot of directors are trying to make a name, trying to look good, and they try and cut around the pool with unilateral cameras and end up screwing it up. It can be a mess. Um, it can be a real mess. So I tend to stay, as I will probably for BET, primarily with the pool cameras. Um, and John Libretto, who's a great director and good friend, is directing this pool, and I'm sure he'll do a job, a great job. He took over from my dad when my dad left. Well, Josh was really onto something there about your work, uh, Max A. Schindler, uh, within the Nixon administration, or, or working for uh, Richard Nixon. But there's more there, Josh. That's right. I mean, there was the, the famous wedding of President Nixon's daughter, Tricia, to uh, Ed Cox. And I think uh, Max notes it as the only wedding ever to be staged in the Rose Garden and maybe the only to be televised live. And I was fascinated by the exchanges that you talked about between you and Press Secretary Ron Ziegler. And I was wondering, scratching my head, Max, 
What was the motivation at all to have cameras on Trisha's wedding? Oh, I just think that it was a historical thing. I think um, she got a great videotape out of it of her wedding. <laughs> I mean, you Best know, wedding uh, video ever in uh, history, right? I, I don't know. How I, did you it, make it happen? It was a news event. It was something that uh, <laughs> the White House fought against. Uh, Trisha didn't want it. And then she finally gave in and she said, I want you to promise uh, through a, a spokesperson, I want you to promise that you'll be you put your cameras in such a way that you'll be as unobtrusive as possible. And she sent me a picture of the wedding later, which said, uh, to, you should get an Academy Award for being the best and most and least obtrusive director in uh, television. Uh, but it was uh, it was a struggle to get it done. But we finally got permission to do it, and then it was the whole thing was a struggle to get it on. But as with any live uh, performance and it, of course a, a wedding in the Rose Garden is a live event and they only trust it to the right person to direct something like this you have to think of contingencies and uh, it was raining that day but I understand uh, that you had uh, thought about the rain and it even uh, asked some folks inside the White House what are we going to do if Max I asked Ziegler I said uh, we had a lot of meetings about camera positions then I said Ron what are you going to do if it rains because the festivities were in the East Room, the wedding was in the Rose Garden. And he said, it's not gonna rain. I said, okay. I said, but what are you gonna do if it rains? He says, Max, I don't wanna hear that negative approach of yours again. He says, it's not gonna rain. Trisha said it's not gonna rain on her wedding. I said, but Ron, what are you gonna do if it rains? And the third time, he really blew his stack at me. He said, I don't wanna hear it anymore. And he started swearing at me, and that was it. So the next day, we had all the cameras in the most unobtrusive places that you can think of. And uh, everything was fine. Everything was decorated. Everything was fine but the weather. And it was raining. And uh, the president asked all of his generals who were there to go into the situation room and call their weathermen to find out if there would be a break in the weather. And I had a vision of these generals sitting in there where wars can be started and everything else. And they're sitting there and they're calling their weathermen to find out about a wedding. And they finally came to a consensus that I think it said 4 or 4.30, there would be a half hour of no rain. So they rushed the guests out there, but the seats and everything were wet, and you could see when they were sitting down that they were very uncomfortable. You could almost feel the water going through tuxedos and expensive dresses as they sat down. And uh, the whole bridal party uh, was supposed to have long gaps in between the first bridesmaids, the second, and everything else. Well. The first bridesmaid got down two steps, and there was the second one, and she got down two steps, and there was the third one. Before you know it, the whole bridal party was on the steps going down to the Rose Garden. And they went in, they did the wedding, and they went inside uh, to the East Room for the festivities. And uh, as I was leaving that night, I saw Ziegler, and I said, Hey, Ron, what are you going to do if it rains? And he looked at me, and he had a really bad look on his face, and he gave me the finger. <laughs> All right. Um, let's. <laughs> you had to be there, ladies and gentlemen. But you've been taken there here on Polyoptics by Max A. Schindler uh, and his son, Max Schindler, are both with us in studio here in Washington, Sirius XM Channel 124. Uh, let's turn to the inaugural because, as I said, since the time of Lyndon Johnson, not just when he got off that plane, but as elected president of the United States, Max Schindler and Schindler Productions, whether it be uh, uh, Max and Max together, uh, as they have done. Uh, through the Clinton administration or other times, uh, you have also uh, created the 
direction for how these things have gone. It was during the Reagan administration that we moved Max uh, from the east front of the Capitol to the west front, and a former polyoptics guest, someone you know well, and Josh does too, uh, Harry Thomason, involved in creating the polyoptic image, that blue, that Schindler blue uh, carpet that is there. Talk to us about all of that, the movement uh, from the from the east to the west front, and that piece of carpet that you're holding up here in the studio the actual Schindler Blue, Josh, I kid you not. I'd always done something from the uh, Capitol, from Lyndon Johnson on, whether it was pool or unilateral, but it wasn't until about 1977 that I realized that uh, the red carpet that was all over the inaugural podium was, was the background for the president when he spoke. And so... Red is very bad for flesh tones, and I kept going to the uh, the jo- joint inaugurational. Why? Well, what do you get? It makes people look ruddy, right? Yes, and I I kept telling to them telling them to use blue carpet, and they kept telling me you can't use blue carpet. There's a saying that says uh, you have to roll out the red carpet for dignitaries, and I said, but it's the worst thing going because it covers the steps, the background for the president's inaugural address. So it kept going on and on through the years, and I kept getting the, you got to roll out the red carpet. When Clinton had his first inauguration, which Max and I worked on, they had the red carpeting, and there was a, a man named Harry Thomason who was a Hollywood producer, and he was a close Clinton friend and advisor. And I said to him, I want blue carpet, Harry, and Harry said, I agree with you. We went to the presidential inaugural committee, and they said, too late, the red carpet's already been bought. So four years later, when Clinton was reelected, and if you look at the two, you'll see the difference. I called Harry the day after the election, and I said, "Remember the blue carpet, Harry," and he called the presidential inaugural committee, and he told them to call me and figure out which carpeting we should use. So they sent me a number of swatches, and this was the one I picked. And uh, I have to tell you a little story about that. After the inauguration is over, they cut up this carpeting into little one-inch or two-inch squares, and they send it out to all of their biggest contributors and uh, dignitaries in the House and the Senate and everything else with a little thing on the back from the Clinton inauguration. Well, they sent me this thing, and what would you say is about 12 by 15? Yeah, it's a, it's a good piece you got, I'm telling you. <laughs> from that inauguration. It's going on eBay as soon as I can get my <laughs> hands gonna, on gonna, it. Sell Josh, it did you get a cut? Carpet. <laughs> Carpet remnants. What will Harry Thomason think of next? Uh, yeah, go. but if you look at if you look at the two, if you play them side by side or do a dissolve from one inauguration to the other, it's a total like day and night. And the Schindler blue has been used at every inauguration since then, even though now they sometimes have the edges trimmed with red. But the thing behind the president is now blue. Uh, they're installing it as we speak, I believe. I saw it going in there the other day when I was up there. Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that uh, I remember one or both of those inaugurations when the first lady, Hillary uh, Rodham Clinton, was also wearing uh, blue and she uh, uh, melded in beautifully with that. And what people didn't recognize, I think, until Max pointed it out, was that when the presidential party is 
announced uh, from the Herald Trumpets, walks down the front facade of the Capitol, down those stairs. It becomes the backdrop. And there is and there and there is something beautiful about that. Adam Belmar was working with uh, Governor Romney on a foreign trip to Poland and had that same effect. Like, what will these stairs become? Stairs actually become our beautiful backdrops as long as they are the right color or tone to mix in with what the what's happening right at the podium. Uh, it took me a lot of years, about 20 years to get it to blue, but <laughs> it's been blue ever since then. There, there are some things that uh, they do at inaugurations that infuriate me because they're so locked into certain traditions. I always used to talk to the military district of Washington. I'd say, the president says, so help me God. I says, hold the cannons for 30 seconds. I want to see the president hugging his wife and kissing his daughter or whatever he's going to do. And they said, when he says, so help me God, the cannons are going to go. I said, but the people at home don't know what's That's going right. on. I said, I'm not right. Nowadays, it would be, it sounds like a potential, who knows what it is. A I'm, obligated, I'm obligated to show the president at that point and not the cannons going off. So until about 20 or 30 seconds go by, I don't show the cannons until then. Yeah, you fought so, that battle and never won that I one. never won it. I never but you won, won others. You did I, win yeah, others. I won others, but I didn't win that one. But they always said that was, I said, but you go back to the days of radio, I said, when they didn't didn't even have pictures. I said, how come, you know, what tradition is this? Where does it say in the in the uh, code of the United States that the president <laughs> has to have the cannons before you can say, oh, you can't wait 30 seconds? Max and Max, in addition to all of the coverage of domestic events that we've been talking about, you know, one thing that NBC has done week in, week out for more than a half century is put on Meet the Press. And we are mindful of experiences like Richard Engel had a few weeks ago of being held captive uh, in Syria and the fate that befalls so many journalists uh, over the last few years as they've trodden into war zones. Young Max, I'm wondering if, as you think about your dad's deployments to talk to David Ben-Gurion or Yasser Arafat or the Shah of Iran or Moshe Dayan and thinking back to what it was like for a kid to see his dad get on a plane to go to who knows where to Vietnam. bring back a piece of tape. Yeah, Vietnam. How, what, were, what were your thoughts when your dad sort of packed up and said, I'm leaving and I've got to, uh, you'll see what the result of my work on Sunday. You know, what's funny is I, it was just like uh, totally natural and normal for me. I, I never thought anything of it, to be honest with you. Um, it just was the way life was as far back as I could remember. He was always getting on a plane to go somewhere. And of course, uh, later that became my life, uh, uh, but not quite as far flung. I mean, in those days, they did uh, a lot more remote broadcasting. They would take the show to the place to do it with the world leader or whoever the newsmakers were or whatever the situation was. Nowadays, with satellite, Skype, FaceTime, and all the rest, you know, we tend to stay in New York or a central location and broadcast from all over the world. So I, I think there's something lost uh, because of that, Definitely. that immediacy of, of being in the place. Uh, you know, it's not as good. But for me, it, w it was natural to see that happening, and I never really thought much of it. Uh, I just used to get a little pissed when he wasn't there for my birthday, maybe. <laughs> but he always made it up to me, believe me. It, it always. Uh... Let me add one thing to that satellite bit. A satellite is like a long-distance phone call. If I'm in the room with you and we're talking to one another, we can react to one another. But if I'm on the phone, I, I can slough you off on the phone very easily. I think there's a certain amount of body reaction and everything else. And going to the places to do meet the press, uh, you were able to see the country, you were able to see the people, you were able to see what was going on, and it flavored the questioning of the reporters and what we did. 
but satellites don't do that, and I think we've lost something with that. The the time that we have together here on Sirius XM 124, our, our polyoptic show, is, is coming to a close. Um, I, I want to take an opportunity to talk for just a second about what it is to grow up in the shadow of Max A. Schindler. And Max, you, a great director in your own right, from New York to Washington, across the networks, you, you grew up in a small folding chair just in front of the, uh, the front deck and right in front of some monitors, which I can clearly Very tell disturb the, the electrical yes. workings of your brain. That's where I used to sit when I was a kid and when he was directing Meet the Press for years in the 60s, 70s. I, when I was a little kid, he would bring me in and give me a folding chair in between the front control room deck, for those of you who know how a control room is laid out, and a row of monitors. Well, at that time, they were huge tube monitors that I'm sure emitted incredible amounts of radiation, and I sat like... You know, well, as close as I'm sitting to this mic That's for 10 years. <laughs> but I literally grew up as, uh, from a very young age in the studios, in the control rooms, uh, with some of these great pioneers of, of what I do well, now. Well, besides being a director, what about the reverence for for the institutions of Washington, for being a patriot, and what it is to sort of uh, help communicate the uh, the presidency of the United States to American people? Yeah, I got to tell you, I, I was asking my dad the other day if he ever got choked up in the control room. I have on occasion. Um, and when he tells some of these stories, I can still get choked up, like the one he was talking about uh, just earlier about the uh, coffin coming up the, off the plane. I mean, there are times where you you feel moved without a doubt. And, and it's a great honor and privilege to um, be the person who decides what images the public will see. Um, because it is a historical record of these events, and, and you that weighs on you. I mean, it weighs on me. I guess it weighs on you too, Dad, I'm assuming. And I learned most of what I know about what I do, by the way, from watching him do what he does, um, and have added some tricks to it, of course. But uh, it definitely weighs on you, and, and you feel like it's a patriotic duty in addition to your television job to broadcast these images in a way that will preserve that record. A director usually listens to the words that are being said and tries to show pictures that will go along with those words. When Martin Luther King gave his I Have, I Have a Dream speech, I was at the Lincoln Memorial televising that. And it was the one time I remember I got more involved in the speech than I got involved in the pictures. He was so dramatic about everything he said, and he it meant so much. And uh, I was totally moved by that. I was more moved, though, by a man who was near our mobile unit, who held up a five-year-old boy. Black man held up a five-year-old boy over his head, and he was yelling at him before the thing started. He said, look at this crowd. I want you to remember what you're seeing now. We're doing this for you. It's too late for me, but it's not too late for you. Now, that kid's got to be in his 50s now, and I'd love to see what became of him. School teacher, lawyer, professor. I, I hope he lived up to his father's dream and all the people that had that march in 1963. Are you proud of your son? He's lived up to your reputation? He's lived up better than my reputation. He's a better director than I am. And it was such a privilege to work with him on those two inaugurals because he was my strong right hand as my TD. He was my eyes, ears. He was all over the place for me. We still work together on occasions, and every time we do, it's 
Well, we almost work together better than our personal relationships. He argues with me more in personal relationships than he does when we work. Because I respect the position, you know. I had the opportunity to work with one of these Max Schindlers in the first HD broadcast of ABC News. It was the inaugural in 2005, right? It was, and it created uh, uh, the climate for all of ABC News to go HD because we did such a nice job, you and I together, uh, with those images from the Library of Congress was our location for that. I remember that. And uh, they were beautiful pictures. In, in HD, that place just was spectacular. And we had Diane and the late, great Peter Jennings with us and the entire ABC uh, crew. It was, uh, it was a real privilege to do that with you. So as we uh, approach, and people will be listening to Polyoptics on this uh, weekend right before the inaugural, Max A. Schindler, where will you be? We know where Max will be. He will be at the museum directing on behalf of BET and bringing coverage to a, a significant portion of the country. But where will you be? I'll be watching a monitor in my house and bitching every time he takes the wrong shot. <laughs> Let me tell you what. I always get the call after a big show. It never fails. Great job. Loved it. Let me give you the 10 things that were wrong with it, right? And literally every single one is a moment in the control room that maybe nobody else noticed. Nobody would have seen it. And how he many gets of them? every one of the littlest, tiniest things that I, I might feel uncomfortable about myself. But <laughs> always constructive, good, right on the money criticism. Well, if you do a show, you know if you've done a good show. And nobody can tell you. I know. Nobody you always te- get the littlest things that yeah. nobody. <laughs> but nobody can tell you you did never a bad fails. show when it was good. And yeah. If it's a bad show, nobody can tell you. Yeah, one of these either. times you could just lie. You could just say it's perfect. <laughs> well, listen. I'd like to fool you just once, you know? It has been a pleasure to have both father and son on this broadcast. Uh, I think uh, Josh would, would agree that we would so love to have you both back. Absolutely. Um, it is a part of American experience, uh, what you brought us, Max Schindler, and thank you for being with us on Polyoptics today. We'd love to come back. Thank Absolutely. You. Thank you both. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. You hear us each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter, at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. POTUS.